0: Like a man in an omega symbol induced trance, the heartstick podcaster logs into Skype, trudging listlessly through his contacts, searching for Michael. His thoughts are dark and stormy as the days where the internet ran on a 56k connection. Hey
1: Michael, how are you doing? How are you man? I, I've got a confession I'm going to have to make to you. Okay. Good hey Michael. After recording 50 episodes, I've realized that being Spider-Man, I mean, a podcast host, has brought me nothing but unhappiness.
0: Dan, how can you say that? Watching TV is your life. You love it. You love revealing it. But in order to satisfy
1: my craving for television, I jeopardize everything that really matters. Aunt May. Nico. Elisa Lee. Chuck Bartowski, Nathan Fillon, the girls of my life. Hey wait, what about me? That's the worst thing that this podcast has done. I almost ruined
0: your relationship with your girlfriend over Aquaman's wife Mira. And for what? Hey man, it's not like you canceled Firefly or took Sam Winchester's soul.
1: But can I be sure my only motive was to give views and opinions on the television industry? Or was it the heady thrill of individual episode reviews? The precious moments of having media junkyard's Robin Bird on our live show? The paranoiac thirst for the power of a network executive which could never be quenched?
0: As a small fan, you've had to bring through this, video.
1: May heaven forgive me, Michael, but the more I think of it, the more I feel that Fox was right to cancel Firefly. <gasps> In which case, for the sake of my own sanity, there's only one thing left to do. Be Spider-Man. I mean, post across the airwaves. No more. I just can't do it by going. I'm going to throw my equipment in a trash can. And it's going to rain on it. And I'm just not going to do it anymore. And even if some kid brings in my equipment to J. Jonah Jameson, still not going to be enough to convince me to come back and keep doing this. I just don't see the point. It destroys lives and it goes against the phrase, with great power comes great responsibility, that I just can't do this. So I'm sorry Michael, sorry for the pain I've caused you and all of our listeners, but they've heard enough of me yakking.
0: that I need to move on. But damn, across the airwaves is not brought pain and suffering to anyone in fact this show has brought joy to every listener that has listened to it it's brought joy to me i've had so many hours editing this podcast i've thrown my whole life into it it's something that i would i would dare i say die for and Niko, what would you do with nico where would he go what would he do he'd be alone on those virgin islands all by himself with nothing to do and nowhere to go no movies to see, no TV shows to watch it'd be terrible he could last he could survive I don't know Dan he adores you and he really, really loves being your co-host I love being your co-host and if you really, really think this is the answer I only have one thing to say well, Michael don't start any fires on my account. No, Dan. That's what I have to say. I didn't start this fire. You no. Didn't. You did. What fire? This one. I thought this is. a... What are you doing? I'm answering both of our problems. This doubt, this self-pity, this across the no more, it ends right now. With this.
2: This is CIA, Adam Baldwin, VOA, Peace Pacific, Walter Bisham, Luca Coco Boom, John Casey, Roger Nixon, Impala on television, North Atlantic, South Pacific, live in Chicago. Winchester's nuke bomb, Rachel Ray, that T. Stamp Kessel and I, and the fun of Family Guy, Morgan Grimes, and Ellie, woke up, got a new queen, The Avengers, Nico's Bonnie, Steven just goodbye. That I didn't start the fire, as the summer's yawning, our cast is burning. That I didn't stop the fire, no, we didn't light it, our come won't fight it. Sky is falling, evil car, and promotion Evil fell, like wood, and his seas flopped Mirrors, is Carers, Bond, Bikini, me Dragon Big Bang, Theory, Bobby, Round the Clock Frankenstein, Lovecraft, Beckett's got a winning team Stevie, Lockham, Superman, named Presley, Wonderland Five more, he's a best, White Collar, yeah, it's Fall from Grace, Honey, Place, Trouble in the Heaven That did in and start the fire as the summer's yearning, our podcast is burning Better than it start the fire No, we didn't light it, our time won't fight it. a rock Apocalypse, Peter Bishop, Bad Attack, Kid Flash Please I'm cry, Jekyll and Mr. Hyde Live show, Pencils, Dove, gold, booster, Golden, Baseball, Stock Expo, Homicide, Children of the Yellow-Eyed Whoa-oh-oh, oh. Nick Fury, Big Bird, also Poochie, Many of ways. Castle, Fireflies the no-go. YouTube, Serenity, Chewbacca and Kennedy, Mr. Decker, Psycho, Hawkman had a funeral. That I didn't stop the fire, As the summer's yearning, off I cast is burning. That I didn't stop the fire, No we didn't light it, I come won't fight it. Family, Iron Man, hang in the strange land. Joel Horizon, it's a V invasion. I'm from Pandoria, Blue Beetle Mania. I'll miss Sam's head, Marky Shepherd wins again. Olivia, Professor X, Hot close ship of sex. CIA, blown away, what else do I have to say? That I didn't start the fire. As the sun was yearning, our cast is burning. That I didn't stop the fire. No, we didn't light it, Our Cash won't fight it Mind Controls, I'm a bin, Lionel Luka back again Good shot, Alpha's, first Me, Hard Rock Robin, Reagan, Powerline, Terror in the Falling Skies Team Bajowski's in Iran, Alpha's in American We were Fortune, cocky Glide, Heavy Metal, Suicide Just a bet, Homeless Left, A-Mac, big and dead Stormtroopers at the door, Heroes under martial law Star was the Clone Wars, Dan can't take it anymore that it didn't start the fire As the sun is yearning All our cast is burning that it didn't start the fire But when we are gone The will still go on and 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 on That didn't start the fire as the sun was off Our cast is burning That I didn't start the fire no, we didn't light it up, our cast we fight it. And we didn't stop the fire. This is Billy just song, that I'm singing it now. We didn't stop the fire. Yes, I stole his music and I put my lyrics. We didn't stop the fire. As the summer's yawning, our cast is burning. And it didn't stop the fire.
1: And with thanks to the words of Stan Lee and the sounds of Billy Joel, we now proudly present to you Across the Airwaves, Episode 50.
0: TV fans are taking
1: over. This is Across the airwaves. Hi everyone, welcome to a milestone episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, stunned by all of the audio editing work that I've done over the past year. Get with me is the guy who has fought through the trenches alongside me every step of the way, my co-host.
3: Hey, everybody. It's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we are proud to be celebrating our 50th episode of Cross the Airways yes. by taking an in depth look at the hit British sci fi TV series Doctor Who, discussing the new sci fi show Alphas, and reviewing this week's episode of Thundercats. Plus, throughout the episode, Dan and I will be having small segments paying tribute to past ATA shows.
1: Yeah, we're going to get this awesome, explosive episode 50 started. With a favorite of everyone's, Nico's Movie and TV News.
3: The Star Wars Blu ray will be released next week on Friday, September 16th, 2011, which also happens to be my dad's birthday. Awesome. Unfortunately, there are reports that Lucas has been added again and has changed the scene on the Death Star where Vader throws the Emperor over the rail into the core of the Death Star. Many fans are extremely angry that Lucas is continuing to mess with the masterpiece that is the original trilogy. Oh, no. <laughs> Our second story... Chuck, season 5 promo photos have been released, and they look great. You can check these out on our Facebook page. There is a link. Yes. A new Castle series premiere promo video has been released, and it's entitled, It's My Fault. And we have a link on our Facebook page. Check it out, because it is awesome.
1: Is that a watch at your own risk video?
3: Uh, No, there's a little bit of scenes from that episode but it's nothing more than you'd see in a couple weeks. we talked about previously with possibly the fight between Castle and Josh and uh some scenes but it's a promo it's running on ABC uh right now okay as well but it, we did get it up on the Facebook page i think the day after it was released and before the major push for it on ABC. Okay. But it is on ABC, so it's not too spoilery. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put it on national television.
1: Good deal, because I just know we have a lot of Castle fans, and we don't want to ruin anything for them.
3: Yeah, no, it won't be too spoilery. All right, nice. Number four, the Deadpool movie with Ryan Reynolds is still a go. Maybe. Producer and queen of the superhero films at Fox, Lauren Shuler Donner recently spoke about the project, which is still prospectively set with Tim Miller in the director's chair and Ryan Reynolds reprising his X-Men Origins Wolverine role as the crimson-clad Merc with a mouth. While the project is still not 100% certain, there does seem to be enthusiasm among the higher-ups at Fox Studios, so it still has a chance of getting made.
1: An X-Men project is going to get made. For sure, I guarantee you, just due to the success of X-Men First Class, which also came out on DVD on Friday, September 9th. Exactly. That just came out this weekend, so if you haven't seen it, go check it out. We have a podcast episode that coincides with that, so check that out as well.
3: Uh, Next story is Farscape. The classic sci-fi TV series is coming to Blu-ray. It's a great sci-fi series well worth the viewing, And I'm a huge fan of the series. I'm super excited to watch it again in HD on Blu-ray. So check it out if you haven't yet. And finally, DC's new numbering of the 52 comic series have begun, and now many of the new series number ones have been released. Not all, but many. The first series to be released was the Justice League. Dan, I believe you got that one. Yes. And if you're new to comics, like I sort of am, Now is a great time to begin reading because with the new number ones, you get into the stories of your favorite comic book heroes from the beginning.
1: I've read Action Comics, Batgirl 1, and Detective Comics 1, as well as the Justice League, and I've been very pleased with all of them. The Detective Comics is excellent. I liked it because it really paid tribute to... Keith Ledger and his portrayal of the Joker in the Dark Knight.
0: Oh,
3: great.
1: And you'll see what I mean when you read it, but it's a really cool idea, and it really pays respect to his portrayal of the role, which was really neat.
3: Good to know, because uh, yeah. that's on my list of things to start reading.
1: That's worth it.
3: And that's the TV news with Nico this week.
1: Yes, all right. Well, before we get things started on Doctor Who, which is going to be an awesome discussion that I'm really excited for... Since this was episode 50, Nico and I thought we'd pull back the curtain and just talk about some of our experiences with this podcast. And one of the things I thought we could do is reveal our favorite discussion that we've had on Across the Airwaves. And in my mind, this was from any of the shows or movies we covered, what our favorite discussion or conversation was. And for me personally, I would have to go with our talks about Fringe that Nico and I have had. It was a really exciting ride with season three of that show, and discussing Fridge was something I really looked forward to every week with this show, because we never knew what was going to happen, and either you or I, Nico, depending on what week it was, would come up with theories that blew each other's mind. And that one just really, I don't know, that was just a really great, supercharged discussion that I felt really played a big part in getting us a solid stream of listeners because it was just so good. And then us going through that whole 180 on Anna Torv where at the beginning of the season we despised the actress and then at the end we were just praising her it was just awesome and a lot of fun. It just shows you how just fluid this TV industry is and I thought it really captured what television's all about and what we were trying to do with this podcast as the idea of enhancing people's watching experience and giving them an idea what other people were experiencing while watching a show. And I thought Fringe exemplified that the best.
3: I totally have to agree. What I had prepared was I have loved our discussions of Castle and Bones, especially our lamenting the existence of Hannah. Yes. But I too think our Fringe theories have been the best part of the last 50 episodes of Across the Airways. We've called some of the best and most unlikely twists in the show. But we've also been proved completely wrong. And as you said, we have a habit of blowing each other's minds and totally looking at a show completely different because of what the other guy said or what the other guy took from it. And that is what really has made me enjoy our discussions on Fringe. And really, for the last, you know, 10 years that you and I have been, you know, buddies and we've been doing our calls for probably about eight or Closing in on eight years now or something with you and I doing our our weekly calls or at least uh, our frequent calls talking about TV and and movies and stuff like that. That's some of the best stuff we do is when we just throw our theories out there and and listen to each other and come up and we totally get a better experience because we're I'm watching a show and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I got to talk to Dan about that. (laughs) So that's some of the best discussions we had now. I think our Avatar, the last airbender episode was a great discussion as well. Yes. And when we brought in Joel and he added to that discussion, and I think, you know, maybe that could be considered one of our best discussions all time. But just you and I definitely are fringe every week. Yes. Is what I like the most.
1: Yeah. I'd have to agree with you. And I think that's kind of what's segueing into our next segment. I really think that's what brought up this idea of you wanting me to watch Doctor Who. Yes. It's the whole, just the way Fringe does things and blew our mind and theories, and I think Doctor Who, after watching a majority of the show over the summer, is going to have the same effect with us on this program. So I'm very excited to dive into this They get talking about a great British sci-fi TV series, the title Doctor Who. <laughs>
3: A UK television staple, Doctor Who was completely redone for the 21st century by the BBC, bringing the show back in 2005 after its cancellation in 1989. The ninth Doctor, played by Christopher Eccleston, came and conquered and died saving the universe and his companions from the cursed Daleks. Regenerating for the ninth time, the tenth Doctor, played by David Tennant, brought more secrets and dark sides of this universe past, present, future, and beyond. After regenerating to once again save the life of a trusted companion, the Doctor, now Matt Smith, is now in his 11th incarnation. With new friends Amy Pond, played by Karen Gillan, and Rory Williams, played by Arthur Darville, with a newly revamped TARDIS inside and out, the Doctor is ready for more adventures in time and space.
1: Doctor Who can best be described at first glance as an acid trip that makes you believe the British put something in their tea and crumpets. In fact, this show is so off the wall, Nico and I are stunned that we were even compelled to watch it. Especially when my dad accused me of watching Power Rangers. Rangers. Just look at the facts here. This show is about a guy that wields a sonic screwdriver who calls himself the doctor that travels around with an attractive female companion most of the time in a big blue police box that goes through space and time. And the, I mean, Bigger on the inside. It's, yeah, it's bigger on the inside. I mean, what in the name of Uncle Sam's America is a police box? Also, I know the effects get way better in Series 4, but it's, what's up with these aliens that are clearly actors in cheesy costumes and the PlayStation 2 quality CGI? Just here are some of the outrageous things we see in the first couple episodes. Mannequins in the mall coming alive. The last human being being a piece of skin. Farting aliens taking the place of British Parliament. And people's faces mutating into gas masks. But wait a tick, you've got me rambling on like the Doctor. Which is something I definitely did want to do. Because despite all of this show's craziness, Doctor Who is worth watching as a series. Because the story... And the character development is just really damn good. Fantastic. Honestly, right from the get-go, amongst mannequins coming to life, the story is what makes this show work. Because the writers simply did a good job of investing you in it by starting out this epic journey through the eyes of a regular teenage shop girl named Rose instead of just dropping us in to the vast universe that is known as the Doctor's character. Again, for those of you who don't know, Doctor Who is a character that's been around in Britain as long as some of the most popular superhero characters that we have here in the United States. Which means that the series starting with Rose essentially was a reboot on the show that ended in 1989. So there was a ton of backstory for the writers to work off of that Nico and I knew nothing about. But instead of leaving us completely and utterly confused, for not watching 30 years worth of television. The writers had us follow the doctor's adventures through someone who was meeting him for the first time, like many of us. So Rose asking the questions about the doctors or journeys that came before made sense without causing us to stop and realize just what a ridiculous show we were watching. Although with that being said, I can't just sit here and not say that the Doctor is a compelling and mysterious character. I mean, the Ninth Doctor, played by Christopher Eccleston, through Rose's eyes, came across as somewhat of an eccentric, grumpy old man, who had grown weary from becoming the last of his kind. For the most part, the Ninth Doctor would express this personality through sarcasm, or warning Rose about the dangers of hanging out with him. But then, would face with danger, and this may come from my experience with only seeing Christopher Eccleston play villains, the Doctor proved he was capable of serious cruelty and violence, especially when his arch enemies, the Daleks, are around. Speaking of the Doctor's arch enemies, many of them have a rather cheesy appearance, with the Daleks looking like motorized garbage cans with plungers attached to them, and the Cybermen looking like giant wind-up toy robots but once you find out the backstory behind these villainous characters or see them on a killing spree, they become much more frightening than they appear. And that especially goes for the Cybermen, who kidnap people and turn them into robots against their will. Going back to the Doctor, as the series goes on, Rose helps the Doctor with his don't mess with me in a dark alley attitude, but the rage built up inside of him still exists. And most of the time, is directed towards villains through Threatened Rose's life. So with that, now that we've kind of covered it, Nico, what was your thought on the Ninth Doctor, as well as this first chapter of Doctor Who, which introduced him to a new audience after being absent for 30 years?
3: You always remember your first Doctor. And for me, that was the Ninth Doctor, Christopher Eggleston. He was brilliant. He was the reason I fell in love with this show. And even back then, I was telling you, Dan, you had to start watching this show with me. Right. Eccleston had some great episodes as the Doctor, and despite not having the same budget for special effects as you kind of said, he brought a larger-than-life persona to the character that caught my attention. As for my favorite episode with the Ninth Doctor, it was actually pretty late in his stead as the Doctor. It has to be the Bad Wolf episode. Yeah. I loved how they had led up to this great reveal throughout the previous episodes, and it paid off so well in the end. And I, I loved Christopher Eccleston as the Ninth Doctor, and when the Doctor regenerated and became David Tennant, I was initially disappointed because I had grown to love Christopher Eccleston as the Doctor, and felt I kind of felt there was a, a real connection in chemistry between him and Billy Piper, who plays Rose. But I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute.
1: You know, this is the thing with me. I'd seen Christopher Eccleston and other stuff before, so I think he did take on an identity as what I truly see the Doctor as, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like, all I knew from David Tennant, until you reminded me of that role, was him being Doctor Who. So I associate Tennant, who we'll get to in a minute, as Doctor Who much more than Eccleston. Because that was the only character I know Tennant as, if that makes sense.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So that was where I was with it. Rose, I liked her from the get-go.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: And I felt she was the main character of that first season. And I don't know if I felt that way because I knew they were going to switch or what right. it was. But if you look back on that first season, the character I connected with that was Rudy for the whole time was Rose.
3: Absolutely.
1: So that's kind of where I was. But I did enjoy the establishment of the Daleks as the Doctor's villain. Mm-hmm. So with that, I'm just going to move on to the next Doctor. Plus there was anything you wanted to say about Eccleston. No. Nope. Some more, okay. And then in the finale, the Bad Wolf episode which Nico was talking about, the ninth Doctor ends up absorbing too much energy and defeating an army of Daleks, causing him to regenerate into the tenth Doctor played by David Tennant. I demand to know who you are! I don't know! Now, I don't know about all of you, but it seems for the most part that David Tennant is the actor who most people that started watching the show with the reboot, like Nico and myself, associate with the Doctor in the same way that fans associate, let's say, Sean Connery to James Bond and etc. Again, an argument could be made Nico and I that we consider David Tennant to be our ultimate version of the Doctor simply because we've seen him play the character the longest. But what made me so attached to the Tenth Doctor was how he was introduced to us through a transition where the Doctor took Rose's place as the central character of the story. And what caused us to kind of, at least in my opinion, buy into David Tennant's Doctor was his performance which made this tenth incarnation of the Doctor much more wackier than his predecessor. For example, one of the trademarks of David Tennant's performance included the Doctor driving his enemies mad by rambling on about completely random stuff from science to the Lion King and somehow miraculously bringing all the randomness together to end up with a plan or idea that saves the day at the conclusion of every episode. Look at these people,
2: these human beings. Consider their potential. From the day they arrive on the planet, blinking step into the sun. There is more to see than can ever be seen. More to do than, no, hold on. Sorry, that's the Lion King, but the point still stands. Leave them alone.
1: I guess when it comes down to it, David Tennant is playing an alien with two hearts, That is certifiably off his rocker. But as I mentioned before with the villains, crazy seems to work really well for this show. Because the 10th Doctor, using random gibberish,
2: people assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually from a non-linear non-subjective viewpoint it's more like a big ball of wibbly wobbly timey wimey
1: stuff. To fight evil, instead of the traditional god or superpowers, makes him incredibly endearing in the sense that he is an everyman, who is much more approachable by people of all walks of life, compared to what we would see as the typical hero. However, with all this praise that I'm giving David Tennant for his version of the Doctor, I don't want you listeners to think that Rose took a huge step back, with her character kind of taking on more of a supporting role than Series 2, because her in that role was vital to David Tennant's portrayal of the Doctor. Basically, with David Tennant's version of the Doctor being almost, I would say, more hip and cool compared to the Ninth Doctor, Rose ends up falling in love with the Doctor, much to the dismay of her mother and boyfriend, who have a really hilarious love hate relationship with the alien time traveler.
2: Vitamin C, is food? simple. soup, nice bowl soup, sandwich, I need you to shut up! He hasn't changed that much.
1: Also, on the flip side of things, even though he never flat out says it directly, the Doctor seems to be in love with Rose. Because she seems to bring out a much more serious side of him from underneath his wacky, fun, let's go explore the universe and have a good time while doing it personality. We just met Queen Victoria. I
2: know! Voila! She was just sitting there. I wanted to say, we are not amused, I bet you fine quid I can make a say Well, if I gamble the man at abuse of my privilege as a traveller in time. Ten quid?
3: Done.
1: Plus, meeting an old companion of the Doctor, Sarah Jane Smith, causes Rose to confront the knowledge that even if she and the Doctor were able to form a romance, the Doctor would never grow old with her. However, it appears that we don't get a real resolution to this issue, as Rose, along with her family and boyfriend, end up having to stay in a parallel world. And the Doctor's final message to Rose, which was performed beautifully by both actors, is cut off just before it appeared that the Doctor was going to say, I love you. And this was really the most emotional and hard-hitting scene of the series so far. And it just blew me away. And really, I got a little choked up watching it just because both actors did it so well. And so, Nico, I want you to kind of talk about your thoughts on the David Tennant Doctor and the way Rose's story arc was dealt with in that second series and her departure from the series.
3: Yeah, Dan, David Tennant is my Doctor. Hardcore fans of the show will always start off a discussion about talking about Doctor Who with a statement of who their Doctor is. And mine is David Tennant. I said earlier that I was initially upset when they made the change to David Tennant because I loved the chemistry between Rose and the Doctor with Eccleston. But I soon saw my folly because David Tennant was the man made to play this role. Tennant was amazing as the Doctor, and he didn't miss a beat with the continuation of the plot lines and overall story arc with Rose. Billy Piper and David Tennant had even better chemistry and more fun than she did with Eccleston. Yes. Which I didn't think was even possible, but they did it. Now the way the Rose and Doctor story ended at the end of the Rose initial story arc was heartbreaking. When their time ran out, right before he told her that he loved her, that was just heart wrenching. Yeah. Great but TV. TV yeah. <laughs> great TV, but heart wrenching. But we got our payoff later in the series when Rose returns. But we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. You know, I don't want to give anything away too soon. Yeah. But I think they did an excellent job with the transition. Now, initially, I was in that Christmas special where he transitions, right? Yes. It's the Christmas episode where he transitions. And I was upset because it was a different feel. But right. I soon realized, as I said, that David Tennant was the man made to be the Doctor And uh, many people agree with us that David Tennant is the new everybody's doctor. And hopefully, if things continue to go well, Matt Smith will one day be a lot of little kids' doctor because he was who they got into the show with. But David Tennant is definitely my doctor.
1: David Tennant set the basis Mm -hmm. for what we got with Matt Smith. Uh, I think... With the Eccleson, he was almost scared to set the basis because he did say he didn't want to be typecasted. He asked mm-hmm. that in an interview. So I think he was a little bit scared to kind of make it his own and have fun with it because he had that fear in the back of his mind. I also thought Eccleson, even though he was good, he had good performances, he was a little bit more serious with his doctor. And we oh, talked, absolutely. And we talked about that, that that could be attributed to him just coming off the Time War and that making him dark and almost feel older because of what he went through. And when he regenerated, Tennant was a younger version of that. So it's possible for that standpoint, that's how they wrote it as well. But the thing with Tennant is he's just as eccentric enough to be one of those characters that you love. For example, like Dr. Bishop on Fringe. Mm -hmm. He's very eccentric. And that eccentric philosophy he has makes us love the character. I don't know what it is with these characters that have kind of a screw loose, but because they have that, we find them very endearing and fall in love with them.
2: This from the man in the bow tie. Bow ties are cool. I think
1: other examples of that would be Sheldon Cooper on Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. He's Absolutely. kind of screwy, but we love him because he is Dr. Bishop, Gary on Alpha, so we'll talk about a little bit, and the Doctor. And I would put it past him that the doctor, some of his wackiness was used as a basis for Dr. Bishop on Fridge. Because I have read, I haven't seen them before, but the doctors before Tennant and Eccleston were also kind of wacky. So I think that wackiness is a big thing of it, and David Tennant captured it beautifully, and that's why I think you and I are saying we love him as our doctor.
3: Because yeah, Eccleston, he that. Yeah, Eccleston was put in a tough position because he was hired only for the one season. They had already, they wanted Tenet. Tenet was unavailable for the first right. season, so they went with Eccleston knowing that Tenet was coming in in season, series two with no option that was going to happen regardless of how well it was received. Yeah. It was very well received, but everybody knew Tenet was coming. So even. The people who were watching it over in Britain knew our man, David Tennant, is going to be the Doctor come series, episode one, series two. So it put Christopher Eccleston, a great actor, in a very difficult position where I almost feel he he wasn't able to make it his own. He had to make it something that would lead into a David Tennant character, and that is always more difficult than doing something completely of your own. And I have to
1: commend him for just doing a great job of taking on that role and doing what he did.
3: Absolutely.
1: With the position he was in. He deserved that. But you can feel right when Tennant comes in and takes over, and he's, that is full glory that you know that's what they originally wanted. Yeah. That and that's what Russell T. Davies, who was in charge at the time, wanted with his doctor.
3: Yeah. And also, I think David Tennant's costume choice for the doctor was a little more traditional and a little more what most people had come to expect of the doctor the suit and kind of a looking like an old school doctor was more what people were accustomed to whereas eccleston went with more of the bad boy look the leather jackets the jeans the much less formal more bad boy as i said so yeah I liked when Tennant took over and went to the more traditional doctor outfit. It was nice.
1: I think Tennant's outfit is much more modern than Matt Smith's even, though.
3: Well, Matt Smith went with the bow tie because bow ties are cool. Right. But no, yeah, definitely more modern. Every time he regenerates, it's a different style, a different character, a different personality. Yeah. So that makes sense that things would change. But I, I don't know. Those suits just were nice.
1: Yes, I know it's a good look, and I like the tennis shoes, oh yeah, yeah, it's awesome awesome touch to it, but uh speaking of changing personalities with the David Tennant doctor, his personality does evolve and change without him having to regenerate after Rose's departure, her leaving, and she's kind of I would say his better half or she was his inspiration to kind of stay positive that yeah, when she leaves the doctor kind of becomes extremely dark and vengeful again. Similar to the Exilson's character, but he still maintains his wackiness. But he almost becomes too wacky because he almost kills himself while trying to destroy a race of evil alien spiders. But thankfully, the Doctor is talked out of this course of action by a runaway bride named Donna.
2: No stupid Martian is going to stop me from getting married to hell with you!
1: I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not from Mars. So we will painfully discuss it a little bit. But all you need to know right now is that the Doctor ends up meeting a new companion named Martha Jones. And on the note of Martha, she could never really take Rose's place in our eyes. Or the Doctor's for that matter.
2: I saw a screwdriver. She was one of the patients, but, but I don't have my sonic screwdriver. She had this straw, like some sort of vampire. I love my sonic screwdriver.
1: But I do have to say that she was a very strongly developed character that I enjoyed watching team up with the Doctor, simply because she was able to match his intelligence, make her medical school training useful on adventures, and that she was slightly more attractive to Rose. Nicolette said that she's probably the most attractive out of tenants companions. And although, just because Martha could hold her own with a Time Lord and his enemies... You're
2: completely mad. You're right. I looked after one shoe. Barefoot on the
1: moon. That did not mean hanging out with the Doctor came without consequence. As Martha having to spend a year traveling the world in order to save her family and the Doctor from the Doctor's Arch-Nemesis Though it is the Master, turned her into a very cold, calculating soldier who, at the end of Series 4, was willing to blow up Earth in order to prevent it from being taken over by Daleks. So with that, Nico, I know this is a character you really enjoyed. What were your thoughts on the introduction and Martha Jones being with the Doctor as his companion?
3: Dan, well, Rose is my favorite companion for character development, And I think Billy Piper is the best actress to play a companion. Martha Jones, played by the beautiful Freema Eggeman, was prior to Amy Pond the best-looking companion of the reboot and definitely the best-looking companion of the David Tennant series, or his time period there. I loved Martha Jones because she was intellectually on par with the Doctor. Well, as much as a human can be with a Time Lord.
1: But But it was enough to impress him.
3: Yeah, she was significantly more intelligent than Rose. Rose wasn't stupid, but she wasn't book smart. Right. Now, Martha was cool about her was she became that rogue alien hunter and part of essentially part of Earth's Salvation in the end of time story arc. And she was such a fan favorite that she not only appeared during the original Doctor Who series. She guest starred in the Doctor Who spinoff Torchwood for multiple episodes. Yeah. She was a very popular character, a very fun character that the fans couldn't get enough of, and she was, you know, kept showing up in the Doctor Who universe.
1: Right. Go ahead. Well, course- oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say that's just because Martha Jones is awesome. She yeah. Just has these scenes that had a real potage factor to them. You saw a lot of her saving the Doctor. And pulling him out of trouble. Yeah. And normally it was the other way around with most of his companions, where he spends it protecting them. So it was kind of fun to see Martha kind of take on the the alpha male role in her companionship with the Doctor. And that'd be viable, and we completely bought into it and wanted to just root for her to take down these invasions and stuff.
3: Yeah, now unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, due to the amazing story and writing of the current series, Amy Pond has become my second favorite companion, and thus has pushed Martha Jones to the three spot, which is unfair for how awesome of a character she was, Yeah. but unfortunately, Amy Pond is getting better and better with every episode, and the writing is amazing in the show, and so... You know, we'll talk about Amelia Pond in a little bit, but, yeah, I mean, Martha Jones used to be a solid number two because Donna was, who <laughs> we'll talk about God next, does. was so far below um, in our eyes. But, yeah, uh, Martha Jones being in the three spot, is it's just unfair. I,
1: I'll go with this, Nico. We would not have Amy Pond if it wasn't for some of the things they did with Martha Jones that worked.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I think if a lot of those things, especially at the end of Season 3, where Martha Jones kind of saved the day, if that wouldn't have worked, I don't think we would have, have what we have with Amy now, with her doing sword fights with pirates and you know all kinds of cool battling robots and all kinds of cool stuff like that. Yeah. I think if it wasn't for Martha and, and all those things with her working... I don't think Amy would be as tough as she is now. Uh, I think, really, Amy is a fusion between Rose and Martha. Yes. And we'll get more into Amy as we go on, but that'll end the discussion with that and move on. So, with that, we're going to move on to Series 4, and I'm just going to go ahead and say, this was the point in my watching of the new Doctor Who that I thought got kind of depressing to watch. It was really, honestly... And I say this wholeheartedly, it was nothing against David Tennant's performance. But the storyline was really set up in a way to make the Doctor come across as a character similar to the Marvel Comics character Wolverine or the Joss and vampire Angel. who basically think that they hurt everybody that gets close to them. In my opinion, it is possible that my dislike for season 4 might have come from the writers almost trying to make the storyline For the show feel exhausted. So it would be easier for us to accept David Tennant handing off the torch for a new actor to play the 11th Doctor. But I think the problems I had with this series resonated from my disdain for the Doctor's new companion, the runaway bride from Series 2, Donna Noble. It's weird. I mean, you're not special. You're not powerful. You're not connected. You're not clever. You're not important.
2: This friend of yours, just before she left, did she punch you in the face?
1: Nico and I talked about this outside the podcast, and our issues with Donna as a companion stemmed from the fact that she was much older than Martha or Rose, which would have been fine if she was a career woman like Sarah Jane Smith. But Donna basically had a dead-end life with no job, and she was still living with her mother, which was kind of just plain sad because Donna seemed like she was at least 40 And I think it was kind of responsible for the gloomy cloud of depression that was cast over the series for Series 4. I mean, based on this point of view, I don't want you ATA listeners thinking that Doctor Who Series 4 was a total bust. Because it really had some great things to help you stick it out through the sad parts. Including Donna's grandpa, who was great comic relief throughout the series. And the return of the David Tennant Doctor's other companions. First off, Martha, who we really enjoy, returns for three episodes. That was my Brilliant! And as exciting as it was to see her back, these episodes were kind of a disappointment when it came to her character because she spent most of the first two episodes tied up in some back closet to keep things focused on the companionship between Donna and the Doctor. But then, at the end of the series... Rose returns wielding a large plasma rifle <laughs> I'm done,
2: yeah. Been busy you know
1: indicating that traveling with the doctor has also turned her into a soldier to the same degree as Martha plus it was just awesome seeing her carry that big plasma rifle I don't know there was something just attractive about that <laughs> but anyhow continuing on Rose's returns leads into a Finale for series four that almost completely made up for the issues I was having with Donna. Because we got to see all of the companions and secondary characters that I loved from the show so far, including the great Captain Jack, who I suggest all of you watch on The Doctor Who Spit Off Torchwood, team up to take down an invasion force of Daleks. They're allowing David Tennant's Doctor to shine by kicking some alien butt. With wacky words instead of weapons.
2: As an old earth saying, Captain. A phrase of great power and wisdom and consolation to the soul in time of need.
1: What's that then? Following this epic finale, we got three specials wrapping up David Tennant's run as the doctor. And the first two specials were just flat out a lot of fun. But the final special took the idea that I mentioned before of the writers making it seem like they exhausted their plot lines to help us accept the switch to the 11th Doctor to a new level, when he causes his companion for that special to commit suicide in a very off-putting conclusion. Thankfully, even though this special ended badly, David Tennant's run as the Doctor ends on a great note, as we get a whopping two-part finale special, where the Doctor has a face-off, against his old arch-enemy, the Master. That causes all to be revealed about the Time War, which resulted in the Doctor being the last of the Time Lords. Unfortunately, just as the Doctor achieves victory over the Master and a corrupted final group of Time Lords, he ends up having to sacrifice his life for a friend. But that's not before we get the satisfaction of knowing that Martha has found love and Rose got a happy evening And Donna is not a part of the show that hopefully will not be ever again. But as for David Tennant's Doctor, he regenerates into the 11th Doctor, still searching for his happy end. But as we say goodbye, I loved David Tennant's last line, where he says, I don't want to go. Because it was so fitting to how the actual actor felt at the time, which was he had become too comfortable with playing the Doctor. that as an actor, he needed to move on, to challenge himself. So after the great performance that he gave us over three series of Doctor Who, I wish him well with his future endeavors. So with that, Nico, what were your thoughts on Series 4, the endings for all the supporting characters, including the companions, and the end of David Tennant's run as the Doctor? I mean, I know Series 4 had a dark cloud, but there were some good things as well, if you agree with that
3: thought. Absolutely. I loved the the finale of Series 4 and the specials that ended with the emergence of the 11th Doctor. I thought they tied it all together, and really, it brought everything to a close except for the Doctor. And we could move on with a new Doctor and new companions. Everybody's storylines seemed to be wrapped up. I thought the ending with Rose and the second version of the Doctor was perfect. And as I promised earlier was exactly the happy ending we wanted to see with Rose and the Doctor getting together. Well, in a sense.
1: It was the best they could do.
3: Yeah, it was great. It worked perfectly. And I thought it was very well written, very well taken care of. Everybody got what they needed. It was really, really great for us viewers who'd been kind of eyeing that from the very beginning. Now, I did not care for Donna at all, as we've mentioned. Not when she first appeared in the Christmas special that kicked off Series 3, nor the entirety of Series 4. But like you, Dan, I did very much enjoy some of the storylines, and of course, I loved David Tennant during Series 4, Yeah. so the entire series was not a waste for me. I just could not stand Donna. And I also agree with you that Donna's grandpa was a great storyline. And oh, yeah. one of the things that made the entire story... Donna's story arc bearable. So in that, one support character made the main character okay, even though she was atrocious.
1: (laughs) And it wouldn't have made sense to the decision that ultimately leads to the David Tennant doctor's death. It wouldn't have made sense if it went with Donna. So the grandpa really helped save that. I'm not going to give that away in case some people want to watch it because it's so good, I don't want to kind of give it away here. But the grandpa is very important and worth every minute of Donna for the way they did things. I thought.
3: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. How about the whole saying goodbye for you, Nico? How was it saying goodbye to David Tennant? Cause you were so close with the character.
3: Yeah. You know, I felt very much like Tennant himself and and the doctor. I don't want you to go, you know, I didn't want him to go. And when it happened, I was upset. You know, I was—I knew it was coming, so it wasn't the end of the world. But at the same time, I was, oh, I felt like a part of my Doctor Who experience had died. Yeah. So I felt depressed and a little bit upset and all that. But eventually, Matt Smith took over. Matt Smith became the 11th Doctor. I was really excited for new episodes when they happened. So that excitement helped me get through that, you know, and the loss of David Tennant. Tennant is great. He, as I said, is my doctor because he's the one that really captured the character for me. But his leaving the show did not diminish my love of the show. So that is another testament to the great writing that this show has.
1: Now, did you feel like David Tennant was losing thunder as the Doctor as Series 4 rolled around?
3: I did not. I know that you, you pointed out that the writers tended to make it feel that way by writing some stories that kind of showed that he might be at the end of his rope, that he was questioning what he was doing, whether he was helping people or just hurting the companions that were coming along with him, things of that nature were big especially in what was the uh water uh, water on mars or yeah. waters of mars that episode or special was very poignant on that point so i feel that they were writing that way but i never felt that david Tennant himself was stale
1: okay i agree with that i really thought it was a right I-, I thought david Tennant was right out all the way through I just felt that they were having difficulties continuing to write for that character.
3: I think they knew he was leaving. I think he had made the okay. announcement and had told them, it's time for me to move on. And so they wrote the character to match that story right. or that, that situation. Yeah. And I think they did very well.
1: Yes. The whole transition went very well. There were things maybe I disagreed with here and there. But I think all those decisions were made to, I would say, butter us up or ease us into a change. And really kind of going back to that point that it was hard to see David Tennant go, it really, I thought, seemed to be a necessary evil in order to possibly free up some money and allow the new showrunner, Stephen Moffat, to establish the idea that Series 1 through 4 was about reminding audiences why they love the Doctor, and Series 5 onwards is about taking what we know and spinning it in a new direction. I mean, right out of the gate, Series 5 sported all sorts of changes that were considered to be necessary, in my opinion, because right from the get-go, the quality of this show was increased to incredible levels, to the point that this has now a huge flagship show to the BBC. For example, the show began to be broadcasted in an HD format with movie level special effects. The Doctor screwdriver, as well as the inside of the TARDIS, was completely updated.
0: I like a bit when someone says it's bigger on the inside.
1: A new young companion, named Amy Pod,
0: coming along, Pond.
1: Was brought in to drive the fanboys crazy. And most notably we were given a new doctor, played by Matt Smith, that fitted with all of these changes, because even though I loved that—I mean, I love David Tennant as a doctor—I don't think the things Moffat wanted to do for Series Five could now Series Six would have worked. By the way, I can't, in good faith, mention all these incredible changes without acknowledging the supercharged music theme. That has been added to this show in scenes where the Doctor stands up to his enemies. It's titled I Am the Doctor, written by the show's longtime composer Murray Gold, and performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales. And basically, all these things together that I mentioned just made me really, really excited about Doctor Who. I mean, it just gave me this refound rejuvenation. For this show that had me glued to the screen, very much so when Tennant first came on the scene. That I loved it, and I was excited, and just to get that feeling again, that feeling of rejuvenation with this show was just awesome. And focusing in on Matt Smith as the new Doctor, I would say that he's similar to David Tennant and that his performance is built off of David Tennant's role. In the sense that he uses wacky comical gibberish to outwit his enemy. But I think Matt Smith's doctor takes this a bit farther by him coming off as almost this big kid. He was just extremely curious and always wanting to try things. I am definitely a madman with a box. For instance, when he first regenerated from the David Tennant Doctor, Matt Smith's version tested out his taste receptors or taste buds by eating all sorts of strange foods, including a stick of butter and fish sticks or what they call in Britain fish fingers in pudding. What's wrong with you? Wrong with me? It's not
0: my fault. Why can't you give me any decent food? You're Scottish. Try something.
1: Plus he does things that you just wouldn't expect an alien with two hearts that travels around in the time machine to do, such as play soccer, which everyone knows is known as football in Britain. Popping out of a cake at a bachelor party. I thought I burst out of the wrong cake, again. That reminds me, there's a girl standing outside in a bikini. Can someone let her in and give her a jumper? Lucy, lovely girl. Diabetic. I mean, the doctor even with the extent of marrying Marilyn Monroe. Seriously, anything you can think of that could be considered as fun, Matt Smith's doctor does it. That does it with style. Who the man?
3: Oh, I'm never saying that again.
1: I mean, There was one episode where there were pirates having to walk the plank, and he was excited about the fact that he was going to walk the plank, minus the fact that there were sharks below. I mean, that's just how curious and fun this guy is. Also, really, he has this knack for, I can best describe it as, finding a diamond in the rough. In other words, the doctor kind of has this tendency to fall in love with utterly ridiculous objects that can't help but make you laugh such as the Doctor in several episodes constantly asking for a fez, simply because he thinks fezzes are cool and it would make a fun fashion statement.
2: What in the name of sanity have you got on your head?
0: It's a fez. I wear a fez now. Fezes are cool.
1: I mean, really, when it comes down to it, and I think this is best exemplified in the opening minutes of the Series 6 premiere, where he basically shows up on the TV, Matt Smith's Doctor is almost like a cartoon always popping up at the wrong time to annoy Amy Pod, much like Droopy driving the wolf crazy, if you've seen those classic cartoons. Guess who?
0: (laughs) I surprise him like this all through the picture.
1: Again, with Amy being a woman, her annoyance towards the doctor constantly surprising her really kind of comes off as she likes it. And some really could make an argument that it turns her on, much to the dismay of Amy's husband, Rory, who is the Doctor's other companion. So, she kissed me. And you kissed her back. No, I kissed her now. Yes, I know. Doctor Who, which is considered to be a kid's show over in Britain, has turned into the plotline of the movie My Best Friend's Wedding. But as a fan of hour-long dramas, it's something that I welcome to the show with open arms. Because one like the new Thundercats, which we talked about in our last episode, it does not insult the intelligence of kids watching the show. And two, Matt Smith as the Doctor, Karen Gillian as Amy, and Arthur Darville as Rory all seem to play off of each other in a way that creates the right amount of humor and dramatic tension to allow us to accept the zany sci-fi universe of the show, along with preventing us from feeling the sense of loneliness That hurt my enjoyment in Series 4. Now, you, Nico, said in the Comic-Con episode that Matt Smith, Karen Gillian, and Arthur Dollarville's friendship that they've established outside of working on the show has attributed to their success as the current cast of Doctor Who, which is something I wholeheartedly agree with. But I also think that these three are very talented actors, and I can't wait to see what they're going to bring to the future of this show, as well as other projects that they will be working on. So with that, Nico, I want to get your thoughts on all the changes that were made at the beginning of Series 5 to increase the quality of the show, because there were a lot of big, glaring things done. And also I want to get your thoughts on Matt Smith taking on the role as the 11th Doctor, as well as his new companions.
3: Dan, I was not an early fan of Matt Smith, not because Matt was bad or anything. In fact, far from it, looking back now, he was brilliant. But David Tennant is my doctor, as I've said about four or five times already, and Matt Smith is the one that came in to replace him. Now that Matt has had nearly two seasons as the doctor, I have to say, he's amazing. He has totally revolutionized the role and has been instrumental in bringing the Doctor Who excitement here to America.
1: As it revolutionized, I get nervous saying that with Matt Smith because I think he's built off of David Tennant. Again, I think that's because he's my doctor. David <laughs> Tennant is that I keep constantly have to say, Matt Smith is good, but we can't count David Tennant out.
3: Oh, no, definitely not. But I think that there are significant differences between his Doctor portrayal, which is an evolution of the David Tennant one, okay. that make it significantly different. And because he essentially went back to a younger-seeming version, yeah. one that is more playful, even than the early David Tennant Doctor, more playful, more loving, I think. Oh, yeah. um. As you watch 5 and 6, you will see uh, those come out, the idea that there is a possibility of future love for him. Things of that nature, I think, are completely wholeheartedly different than what we've seen of the Doctor before. Even though we said that maybe he fell in love with Rose, this is even to the next level. So that's why I say Matt Smith has kind of revolutionized the role, because he's Maybe evolved the role is a better way of saying it. The
1: other thing is it feels like that journey that David Tennant went on in the last season, the way him looking back at his life at the end of his final episode, I think acted as a catalyst for what the Matt Smith doctor is doing. Yes. It builds off of it very well where that version of the doctor died, realizing he never really shared his feelings for the woman he loved. And now this Doctor is almost rethinking those feelings and emotions.
3: Yes. And now I said that Matt Smith has been instrumental in bringing the Doctor Who excitement to America. That can be most plainly seen by the Series 6 premiere. Both episodes shown twice in a row with them doing a panel in between. It was Moffat, Matt Smith, Karen uh, Gillum, and Arthur Darville all here in the States answering questions for Doctor Who fans. They did two episodes, so that was about an hour and and a half, hour and 42 minutes, something like that. And they showed them both back to back. So they showed the whole thing commercial-free. And they sold out like a 3,000-seat theater Theater, twice. They did the first show. Then they did a panel with the first show's audience that was moderated by the Nerdist podcast, Chris Hardwick who is probably one of the largest Doctor Who uh, celebrity fans of the show. He's all over the place. If you watched any of the BBC America's recent special leading up to new episodes of Doctor Who two weeks ago, he was one of the main people that they interviewed during that for their opinions on the Doctor and all that stuff. So anyway, he led this panel and uh, Matt Smith came over And Karen Gillum and Arthur Darville, and they were huge just promoting it, and they loved it. And then uh, Matt Smith and Karen Gillum came back to Comic-Con. First time ever the Doctor's been at Comic-Con. They loved it. They did the Doctor Who panel. They did the Nerdist podcast panel. They did all these different things at the Comic-Con just because they realized America has caught Doctor Who fever. So they've been instrumental in helping to ignite that and keep it going and keep building it. And I think we're going to see a a huge surgence over here in the states because of they realize we love this show now. This series six was the first time the doctor had ever shot in America. It was the first time they'd ever come. The second time they'd ever been to America because one of the episodes uh, with. Tenant, they were in a basement that was supposedly under Cheyenne Mountain. Right. Uh, but it was shot in a sound studio over in Britain, in Cardiff. So, this was the first time they came. They had ATA favorite Marque Shepard yeah. there as an FBI agent. It was...
1: It was great. great on the show, by the way. Oh, oh,
3: brilliant. As always. Yes. But yeah, so it's huge here in America. And part of that was not only did the Doctor change when the 11th Doctor took over the show, but as we mentioned, also the showrunner and lead writer changed from Russell T. Davies to Stephen Moffat, longtime writer for Doctor Who and a huge Doctor Who fan from right. way back. And Stephen Moffat has been instrumental, again, in changing from one-off episodes with kind of vague or less clear overarching story arcs to a complete overarching theme for every series. And even across the two series so far, uh, we've seen some of these overarching themes. So he was also able to create some of the great monsters, the new monsters in the Doctor Who-verse. Specifically, uh, I especially love the silence at the beginning of this season. In that two-part episode I was talking about, that was a great Doctor Who monster. Really well done
1: He does a lot of very uh, visual and, like, cerebral types of villains.
3: Yes, very much so. Very cool. He's done his Daleks, he's done his Cybermen, which we've seen in every incarnation of the Doctor, but they have something different, or it's a little bit different every time. Like, they were multicolored this time. That was something completely new. That was cool. Now, I have become a huge Matt Smith fan and even have to say I like him better than Christopher Eccleston, which was not originally the case. But Smith has brought so much fun and energy to the character, he just can't help but fall in love with him as the Doctor. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Well, I was going to talk about Amy Pond. So if you well, want... that's
1: what I was going to go into, actually. Okay. <laughs> I was just going to say a lot of it does, and this will go right into what you're going to say. I think a lot of it does come from him having to keep up with Amy. Yes. Because Amy is a woman who has a mind of her own. Absolutely. And the doctor has to be almost a certain level of crazy to be able to keep up with her.
3: Yeah. And my comment about Amy Pond was Karen Gill, she's not the most talented actress to play a companion throughout the history of the show. I give that credit mostly to Billy Piper as Rose, but Karen is by far the most attractive companion of all time. Go back throughout the whole series, even all 30 years before, and I'd have to say Karen Gillan is the best looking actress to play a companion on the show.
1: And I love the accent.
3: Yes. Amelia Pond is sexy. So much so that there was quite a bit of outrage after the Series 5 episode when she kissed the doctor in her bedroom in her nightgown the night before her wedding to Rory. It was scandalous. Especially for a children's show. There was all kind of outrage over in the UK about BBC showing it on a family program. But they were trying to up the sex appeal of the show, and it worked. She yes, is gorgeous. Go crazy. She is gorgeous. People were going nuts when she walked out on the stage at Comic-Con. And Karen's acting is improving and by no means am I saying that she is not a good actress or should you draw any similarities to my feelings about early Anna Torv because Karen is still a better actress than Anna Torv has become or she was, you know, when Karen started, she was still better than what Anna has become, but her acting is still, even as we see it, improving. And I'm finding myself debating whether she could become my new favorite companion And knock Rose out of that number one spot. Because I've always said Rose was the best companion. But with the quality of Karen's acting and the quality that she is bringing to the show. And especially the writing of Stephen Moffat and the other great writers that he surrounded himself with. I'm loving Amelia Pond. She is becoming great.
1: She's got a really wild, ambitious, unexpected personality. And that's what makes her fun to watch.
3: Yeah. And finally, I was talking about Moffat. I love that Moffat did something we've never seen exactly before. Well, maybe a little bit with Rose and Mickey, but not really. But the idea is he introduced the idea of the companion's companion. Arthur Darville, who plays Rory, is Amy Pond's companion and now husband that travels along with her and the Doctor. Traditionally, it's been doctor, companion. Doctors male, companions female. Well, now we have a third full-time traveler who is Rory. And it has become quite clear that it is Amy and Rory and the doctor. Amy and Rory is one entity and the doctor is the other. So they're the companion. And so... Early on, you couldn't tell in Series 5 whether she was in love with both the Doctor and Rory. You know she's in love with Rory. But it
1: still gets questionable at times. It
3: does. And they they like to play that up. And they like to make Rory get jealous or things like that. But there's an excellent episode called Amy's Choice. And when you see that, you will understand the dynamic better. I think you've seen that one, Dan.
1: Yes, I have, yes. I will agree with you on that. I just think they still play around with it, just that tension. Yeah,
3: even even in last night's episode, they do. Okay. So this was a unique move that proved the brilliance of Stephen Moffat as a storyteller. These two series-slash-seasons, which we're about to finish up this fall, have been... Uh, or they've been building from the very beginning of series 5 and when you complete this season you'll see the brilliance of Stephen Moffat as a writer and the necessity of the Rory character to the overarching storylines of the 11th Doctor thus far I can't say enough about the brilliance of this show because it's still evolving but it's so amazing it's some of the best writing on television and Stephen Moffat is a huge part behind that and if you're not watching this, show you need to be watching it
1: over here we've got you know our J.J. Abrams that are Joss Whedon Moffat is the guy too he should be on that list from what we're getting from this show
3: and Abrams has said that for Fringe he took a lot of stuff from Doctor Who the history of the 30 years of television plus the first couple years of the new reboot into And you even said some of the Doctor can be seen in Dr. Bishop.
1: And the ideas of parallel worlds. Yes. And a lot of that stuff is very... If you watch Fringe, you're going to know what they're talking about on Doctor Who. Because they follow the same rules. Yeah. I think how some villains and stuff are dealt with is a little different on Doctor Who. And again, Doctor Who, I think, is more... It's a kid's show, but it's a little more whimsical and fairy tale like compared to Fringe, but if you enjoy Fringe, you'll enjoy the show. So it's really worth talking about. And again, Nico and I could spend all day talking about Doctor Who, because there's such great material, mythology, that everything to run by it, it's great. It's all available on Netflix, so I recommend to all of you check it out. It's totally worth it. It's a great accessible way to watch everything, and it's a lot of fun. But really, we could talk about it all day. And... I'd love here to speculate with Nico about the future plot lines that I have up in the air so far. Again, I'm about three or four episodes behind, so I'm getting caught up because I was getting caught up with the show over the summer. And really, I've got all this speculation like for the idea of the themes going on with season six. The baby that Amy's pregnant with, is it the doctor or Rory's? And is this baby that she's pregnant with the little girl we saw regenerate at the end of the season six premiere? And is she a continuation of the Time Lord race? And then we have this character, Professor River Song, this woman from the future who claims to be the Doctor's wife. How does she fit into things? So my brain is running wild with theories and speculation about all this. And we're just going to have to leave it to be continued here on ATA because once I'm done with the Doctor Who series, which should be about two weeks, that I think will be a part of our next episode, we're going to kick things off Right from the point after all these answers are revealed. So be ready for that. Doctor Who is coming to ATA, and we're going to just get the ground running from the most current episode. That will give you a heads up on what number that's going to be closer to when I'm done with completing watching Doctor Who. So I hope this is a good little taste of Doctor Who and what we're going to be talking about at ATA and how it's going to be a part of things. So definitely check this show out if you haven't. And for those of you already watching it that listen to this podcast, look forward to more Doctor Who coming to ATA. But uh, before we get to Alphas real quick, I was getting a little bit out of myself there, Nico. I had it written down here to share our favorite funniest moments from the podcast. And so I wanted to go first with my favorite funniest moments. One that came to mind that you reminded me about is us dogging Hannah throughout all those discussions about Bones, and how we couldn't stand her and all these horrible ways we came up with her to die. That was quite hilarious. The other thing I thought was funny was during the live show when we were giving Michael a hard time about Aquaman's wife, Mira, and how we all kind of ran wild and gave him quite a hard time regarding her, and we got him in trouble with his girlfriend, and Elisa Lee got really funny, and I just thought that was a really fun moment. And Michael's reaction to that was just great. So I couldn't have an episode 50 of ATA without him a bit about that because it was quite fun.
3: Yeah, for sure. Michael, I wasn't even in the same room, and I could tell he was getting a little red and embarrassed. But, yeah, no, that was great when we were giving him grief because he he made an innocent comment about Mira being... Attractive in this episode or something, and we just took it beyond what was necessary to make fun of them. So that was that was a good moment. And, yeah, I have to agree that a lot of our discussions about Hannah and being just atrocious and how we wanted to kill her and how I kept saying for, I think, like five or six episodes in a row, when are they going to kill her or why can't they kill her and all this stuff. And, uh, I mean... It's funny to me. I don't know if it's funny, haha, to to the listener, but that was definitely some of the... the... We
1: had some dark humor on our both sections. Yeah. Got us rooting for the sniper like we did.
3: Yeah, I'm sure there's there's something funnier looking back, but I'm not remembering. I just know when I listen to the episodes, I catch myself laughing, sometimes laughing at myself because I said something stupid. But... <laughs> You know, those are the funny moments for me.
1: Well, here's to hoping that in our next 50 episodes, we don't have a character like that. I agree. But knowing our luck, who knows? So with that, we're going to move on to another sci-fi show that's going to be joining our program on a regular basis. And that's Alpha. So take it away with the summary, Nico. People, don't like, People like me.
3: A group of everyday people who possess uncanny neurological abnormalities is working for a secret government agency. This elite group is able to uncover what the CIA, FBI, and Pentagon cannot or will not solve.
1: Alphas, as the summary sort of described, is a show about ordinary people with superpowers working together to help, or in most cases, bring to justice other people like them known as Alphas. Basically, Alphas as a TV series is what NBC's heroes should have become in its later seasons because the superpowered individuals on this show actually interact with each other instead of following their own individual plot lines. In other words, character interaction works for this show and will most likely give it a long life cycle on the Sci Fi Channel because Alphas follows a writing technique that has been proven. Time and time again to keep a show's storyline from flying off the rails. The police procedure. For instance, on shows like NCIS, CSI, and Bones, each of the characters have a specific archetype and expertise, such as Bones being an anthropologist, and Hodgins being the bug guy, which is vital towards everyone working together to catch the killer of the week in a way that is made compelling by the writers. The writers. Well, in the case of alphas, the writers do the same type of thing, but instead of each character having specific expertise they can bring to the table, their superpowers are what makes them valuable when working as a team to either apprehend or help the alpha antagonists of the week. Also at its heart, the team of alphas that this show focuses on is intended to be a support group that just happened to be enlisted by the government. So this gives the writers a built-in excuse to bring many of the characters' personal relationship problems to the forefront, which mainly stems from each of them having powers. So with that, Nico, why don't you give our audience, just so they can follow along with us, a rundown of each of the characters' powers.
3: Sure. Hicks has the ability of hyperkinesis, which allows his brain to process movement at a much faster rate than others'. Gary has the power to view and interact with wireless communication signals out of thin air and process information as fast as any computer. Rachel has the ability to heighten each of her five senses to the point that she can view things at a microscopic level or detect complex chemical compositions by scent. Nina can mentally push people into doing whatever she verbally asks of them, and in a way that is very similar to the good old-fashioned Jedi mind trick. And last, but not least, is the big guy, Bill, who has the ability to activate his endocrinal fight-or-flight response at will, resulting in increased durability and super-strength.
1: Again, along with these powers, these characters that make up the ensemble cast of Alphas have really well-defined personality archetype that match up well with their powers. But even though all the characters come off as interesting for the most part, some stand out more than others. Like Gary, for example. You tell us. Respect the bat. Gary. Yeah. Bill is laughing. Gary, played by Ryan Cartwright, who you may recognize from playing the ATA character favorite, Vincent Nigel Murray, on Bones, has really become the standout character on this show. Because he is able to display the same type of comic relief that makes characters like Dr. Bishop on Fringe or the Doctor on Doctor Who, like we mentioned before, so lovable. I
0: want a patch on my jacket, a G. Okay, I'm gonna get you a G. For Gary, for Gary I'm gonna sew it yeah. on myself You just focus for a couple minutes, Yeah, okay? okay, hey
1: Cameron, you're up in my grill now. You gotta get out of my grill, okay? But most importantly, Gary's disability of autism makes him come across as an unlikely hero that you just can't help but root for, especially when he comes through for his fellow team members in the clutch. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Gary can't be a hero because of his autism, but I find myself cheering this character on in the moments where Gary shows his independence despite the people around him thinking he is incapable. I'm a baller.
2: How do you even know that word?
1: It's the right word. Plus, I have to give this show credit for drawing awareness towards autism, which is becoming a bigger part of our society. On that note, ATA did get a tweet from someone who felt that Gary displayed many more mental disabilities than just autism, which is probably an accurate observation. Since when are they letting retards to the school? I'm not, I'm not a ret. Hey, you shouldn't use that word. I'm autistic. You're a retard. But this is a TV show that the writers don't have the time to get that detailed on a character attribute without slowing down the story.
0: You're stalling. Bro. You're stalling.
1: Okay. I mean for myself, who I'd like to think is an advocate for disabilities, I'm just happy that the concept of autism has been brought up on the show. And I think the whole conflict that we've seen with Gary's mom somewhat trying to take his independence away in fear for his safety or that it might be too much for his disability is something that we haven't seen before that is fresh and new for television. Even though it is an issue that people with all types of disabilities ...based in their everyday life. Another aspect that Gary has brought to Alphas... ...is a lot of character development in Bill. Who at first thought Gary was a liability... ...due to his autism. But now after the unlikely pair... ...had to team up... ...they've seen to develop a buddy relationship... ...that's a cross between... ...Rain Man and Lethal Weapon. Which is really fun to watch. With Bill as the former FBI agent... ...who is in the process of putting together... ...a family... And Gary has the wild card to ask all the questions to make sure that all perpetrators respects his badge, especially when he's driving.
0: I told you, we asked the questions. Respect the badge. Step out of the van.
1: However, as entertaining as the partnership between Bill and Gary can be, credit needs to be given to David Strathairn, I think that's how to pronounce his last name, for his portrayal of the main character on the show, Dr. Lee Rosen who is basically the Alpha Team's leader and psychiatrist in a very similar fashion to Professor Xavier from the Expat. Although what makes Dr. Rosen so compelling is that he's got it much rougher than Professor Xavier in my opinion based on the fact that he is human and not an Alpha which means he's constantly put in the position where he must prove to people with abilities including members of his own team that he can be trusted, despite his connections to the government. On the flip side of things, when it comes to standing by, his belief that humans and alphas should coexist, Dr. Rosen has had to make sacrifices when it comes to human interaction. Or a personal life. For example, at the beginning of one episode, it appeared that Dr. Rosen started the makings of a romance with the female FBI agent, the as liaison, between his team of alphas and the government. But then Dr. Rosen had to make a choice to protect his people, and his chances of a romance went up in smoke. Also, with the most recent episode, Dr. Rosen trying to uphold his belief that alphas and humans should coexist has taken its toll on him in other ways, by a strict moral code of being a pacifist, very similar to the doctor, but far less wacky, going towards the direction of being broken to protect the members of his team, along with innocent people who may cross the path of an alpha. Another character on the show that deserves some street cred is Rachel. And she is similar to Gary in the sense that she has a different background than we're used to seeing with people who have superpowers, by her enhanced senses preventing her from upholding the tradition brought over by her family from India of getting married. And at first, this whole issue led to Rachel getting thrown out of her house and breaking off all contact from her family. But now this conflict has come to a head in a very interesting fashion by Rachel's ability revealing to her that her father has cancer. And I like this situation because it puts the pressure on Rachel to save her father's life in a more practical sense that's new and different to the genre that us say pulling him out of a burning building. As for the other two alphas, on Dr. Rosen's team, Tix and Nita, I'm at a crossroad between being uninterested or unsure of where they are going with them. I mean, I get that the two are entangled in a romance, but I feel like it's moving awful fast, with them being shown sleeping together twice. The first time by their own free will, and the second time under the influence of another alpha's power. With that being said, I don't want to get bogged down with my issues over this romance because with it being the first season, that type of stuff can be easily resolved. Plus, there's so much great stuff going on with this show. Regarding Gary, great guest stars known to the sci-fi audience, including Summer Glau, Lindsay Wagner, and Brent Spinner, who we all know for playing Data, and excellent cinematography work displaying the abilities of the various alphas that have appeared on this show, there's no reason for you to take any negative thoughts about Alphas away from this discussion. So with that, what were your thoughts on Alphas, Nico?
3: Dan, I'm a huge fan of Alphas. I said on an earlier episode that I was going to add it to my Monday night viewing schedule that was mostly what was on the Sci-Fi Channel, and I have to say that the newcomer Alphas held its own very well with my perennial favorites, Warehouse 13 and Eureka. Better than Eureka, actually, which ended up getting cancelled, as I mentioned in last week's News with Nico section. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yes. Alphas is compelling television. It has great characters, action, usually a mystery that needs to be solved or a new alpha to be found. A good solid character development on every episode. We, we get either one of the alphas, we learn something new about them. Dr. Rosen brings something out of each one. And so we're getting forward progression of the show. We only have 10 episodes, 13 episodes in this first season. So it's going to have to move a little faster than you maybe would on uh, a 22 run. Right. But we're getting that solid character development on every episode. So I think it's very well written. It's, It's going very well. And, as you mentioned, Gary played, as you said, by the ATA favorite, Ryan Cartwright. He's my favorite character. Yes. I have to agree with you, Dan, that Cartwright plays the high-functioning autistic Gary very well. He may not be perfect in his portrayal at all times, and may seem to express other than autistics or issues from time to time. I think both he and the writers do an excellent job portraying a very difficult to simulate issue. Autism is, is notoriously difficult to fake. And actors with more screen credits than Ryan Cartwright have tried and I don't think done any better than him. I think he's done a very good job. And you're absolutely correct. Autism seems to be on the rise these days. Or rather, it's being more accurately detected and treated. So it is more prevalent in society because it's more talked about now. So it's great to see shows like Parenthood on NBC and now Alphas on Sci-Fi starting to address the issue on major television. And bring a more positive and realistic portrayal of the disorder disease to the general population. And so... I have to commend them just as you did the writers and Cartwright for doing such a great job and yes, maybe it's not perfect and uh, I think that uh, our the comment on the tweet that we got was talking about how maybe they should address that he has more going on than just autism because that's what they just keep naming it but I think they're doing a very good job for a very difficult disorder or a very difficult disease to address on television, and I have to commend them, as I said. Now, as for the rest of the show, I've enjoyed it immensely and have to say that Hicks is probably my second favorite character because he seems to have, to me, I I think he has the most depth under the surface of who he is as a character because we... We know the issue with his kid, his ex-wife. He had a past career as a baseball star. We've, we've learned all those kind of things from his little issues. Plus, I also like that he was initially one of the quote-unquote bad guys, and the team hunted him down. And then because he was under the influence of another alpha, he was able to become part of the team and become a productive member of society. And they're helping him to control his ability so he has less of his false starts or his fumbles or his you know mess-ups where he goes way off the rails and everything seems to go out of control. So right. I think he's a very compelling character, a very interesting character, and I, I think he's probably my second favorite character on the show because of that, although I do like Dr. Rosen as well.
1: Yeah. I just um, think they should explore a little more with Hicks. I feel like he gets overshadowed by Gary and Bill. And their whole thing.
3: Yeah. Because and that's
1: exploded.
3: For a while there, I was really not liking the Bill character. I didn't like it. But since the episode where he and Gary became partners and Bill decided he wanted to be a full-time member of the team, it's gotten better. And I, I think I've loosened up with him a little bit and I like his character a little more now. Right. But I found his backstory and the suspension from the FBI kind of lame and distracting rather than compelling or interesting. So I'm glad that issue has been resolved. He chose to be a member of the DCIS team or the the Alpha team as a full-time member. And there's no more of this. I could be leaving going back to the FBI. That was just distracting. And really, I felt it was pretty weak. Right. It was the only thing I had an issue with in the whole show.
1: I just thought it was a necessary thing to explain why there was a character that had training in the group. Yes. Like I felt like that was important that there needed to be somebody that had some kind of either military or FBI or some kind of police.
3: Well, Hicks was a sniper. Member. Remember, he was an right, army sniper. Too, yeah.
1: So I think it helps just having two characters that are in that position. But Absolutely. with Hicks being as much of a wild card as he was when he was introduced in the beginning, that I think it was necessary. You had to have somebody that was law enforcement that was reliable as well. Yeah. But not that I'm saying I think Hicks has proven himself reliable now, but at the beginning of the show, it was a different story. So that's where I'm at with that. But I can see where you're saying it's distracting.
3: Yeah. But overall, I have to say I have thoroughly enjoyed this first season of alphas and was glad to see the news that it was renewed for a second season already so that's great news and i
1: think there's like two or three episodes left
3: yeah okay we'll start up with new ones tomorrow they uh were off last week because of the holiday so tomorrow they will be up and new and we have a couple more to go so
1: that'll be good and really this is worth checking out too it's a lot of fun a lot of at times i'd say what they should have done with heroes
3: Oh, absolutely.
1: <laughs> but it's fun, and uh, Zach Penn, the guy behind it, was responsible for many of the X-Men films that have worked on a lot of scripts for Marvel movies. So he knows what he's doing when it comes to the superpowers. But yeah. Good. Yeah, we both agree that it's a good show. Moving on time-wise, we're going to speed things up a little bit here. Going back in time with ATA episodes. Nico, what was your favorite episode? Of ATA that we've done.
3: My favorite episode has to be our Comic-Con episodes. Okay. Especially this year. We talked everyone's ear off, and it ended up being like two and a half hours long. We had to split into two episodes, but it was a lot of good info and a lot of fun to prepare for. And you know, we watched all the panels, listened to I listened to a bunch of podcasts from Comic-Con. The Nerdist, like I said, was from Comic-Con. Doug Benson did one from Comic-Con. I don't think Adam Carolla did this year. I think that was last year he was at Comic-Con. You know, there was a ton of stuff from Comic-Con, and reading the Internet posts about it and watching the G4 special, watching, reading the posts on G4's blog, all that stuff was a lot of good information. I enjoyed a lot of it. And, you know, getting to talk about it was great.
1: I agree with you on that. And the panels, getting to watch those panels and stuff. I think this is the closest with us doing this podcast. It was the closest we could get to Comic-Con without actually going.
3: Yes, indeed.
1: Um, so I loved the podcast kind of forced us into doing that. As for my favorite ATA episode, the one I'd have to say is the Smallville finale live show, where we got that huge surprise with Robin Burge from Starkville's House of Bell jumping on our show and us getting to talk with them and stuff. That was a really cool experience. That was the great episode. Michael and I had a lot of fun that night. But, again, I can't say that as my favorite episode completely because you weren't there with us, Nico. Yeah. I can say the favorite that you and I did, I really enjoyed that Avatar episode, like you said. Yeah. That was just a lot of fun. I really enjoyed watching that show and the experience with it. That it was a great way to top it off. It also helped me feel a lot better... About that god-awful movie.
3: (laughs) Yes, yeah. And I have to say our ATA live Smallville shows, just all of them that we did, if you lump them into one, that was a lot of fun as well. There was always fun. We had some great discussions with our guests and with Michael. Great to get Michael involved with those. And now he's going to start up with his own segment on the podcast because he's been so successful in those live shows with us. It's always a good time, and some of the best shows we've done, so those were always fun.
1: Right, and for that audience is why we're doing our Smallville episode review section yeah. as well, because they asked for it in the show. So that's and I th- cool. And I think
3: when you ask me this question at our 100th episode, I'll have to talk about tonight's episode of, with the Doctor Who discussion. That's going to probably be on the top of the list as yeah,
0: well. Yeah,
1: this was, this was very good. The other thing I want to show, throw out about Our live show episodes, it was always great talking with Elisa Lee and having her a part of everything. And, uh, you know, she really played a big part in us having these 50 episodes as well, that the people she's talked to and stuff like that, helping out and supporting our show. So I wanted to give a shout-out to her for that. Absolutely. And speaking of which, since she is an animation junkie, we're going to move things forward to talk about a show that all of you animation junkies love, Thundercats with episode 7 of the new show, entitled Legacy.
3: As the Thundercats relax outside the Tower of Omen, Lion-O thinks the Book of Omens is tech rather than magic. He attempts to power it up and is zapped and meets Jaga's essence inside. He travels back in time in the form of his ancestor named Leo to find out what happened generations ago.
1: Alright, here's what I liked about this episode of Thundercats. First off, this episode did an excellent job of fixing the enormous plot hole created in last week's episode by Mumm-Ra's jarring flashback where it was revealed that the cat's ancestors worked for him. I also liked how it was revealed that Lionel's ancestor Leo and his girlfriend weren't evil minions completely loyal to mum Ra. They were just working for him until they could get the Eye of Thundera and free all the other classes of animals such as the lizards and dogs that were enslaved. At the same time, Lido seeing Leo raise a revolt against mum Ra through his own eyes was enough to make him see that he needs to unite all of the animal classes to reclaim his throne, which is something that brought a smile to my face because it ensured that the philosophical themes brought up in the pilot are all going to be addressed, minus them being absent for the past couple of episodes. Moving on to the action, the idea that there were multiple crystals besides the Eye of Thundera that could create armor was an ingenious idea, because it allowed mum to have a much more fearsome look without disrespecting the old-school fans and the addition of the crystals extends Lido's quest to find these crystals to at least the first season. Plus, if the Thundercats would have continued back in the 80s, they probably would have went this route with the armor to sell more toys. So it makes perfect sense to introduce armor in this new series, even though there's some potential for hardcore old-school fans to get upset. Lastly, it was a great move to end Lido's trip back through time with him seeing Leo and his girlfriend crash land Mumra's spaceship on a planet called Third Earth. Because this was a great example of the writers for this show paying respect to the old series, but yet giving us something different by having a group of cats arrive on Third Earth as refugees from a distant planet, like the old Thundercats show, and then jumping time forward to follow the story of their descendants. As for issues that I had with the episode, maybe the reasoning as to why the cats wanted to betray Mumra should have been explained better, since they weren't really enslaved like the other classes of animals. But then again, throughout history, there have been several groups that have risen against their leader, simply because they could. So I'm just going to let this one slide. So with that, Nico, why don't you share with everyone your thoughts on this episode of Thundercats?
3: Yeah, as I sort of predicted on last week's episode, we were going to see the Book of Omen reveal its secrets to Lionel only after he had proven himself worthy. And the book tested his worth by having him have to recreate the uprising against Mumra and be successful in that struggle to learn the secrets of the Book of Omen, or the book would forever be closed to him. This was a brilliant move on the part of the writers. It allowed us to see this flashback, ...to the past, but keep our hero at the front and center by having him relive and re-engineer their uprising. They answered all the questions, as you said, we were raising at the end of last week's episode... ...and gave us a plan for the future episodes of Lionel working to unite the species of Thundera. I really enjoyed this episode, I hope that future episodes can live up to the great start to the series we've seen... And this was one of the best episodes. I think that this and the pilot are on par and are really the high-set bar that they have to shoot for for the rest of the series.
1: Well, when it focuses on that theme of uniting the classes, the animal classes, this is when this show gets really interesting and good. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is the right word to use for it, but almost when it gets political, it's an interesting show.
3: That's a good good as way way as any to describe it yeah when it starts tackling mature themes and those things that we talked about in that first pilot that really caught your attention and mine as well when they start getting back to those rather than the struggle of Lion-O to take command of the Thundercats that's where it gets a little tiresome if every episode's going to be him questioning or the Uh, his followers questioning his ability to lead. I think we've passed that point. Now they need to move forward the story. And this is a great way to do that by concentrating on uniting the species that were, as you said, the classes of animals. And I think we're going to see Lino have to eat crow and kind of come down from being king of all to one of many kings. And that's the only way it's going to work. Yes, he may be supreme allied commander of all the species, but when it comes down to the fight against Munra, but he's also going to have to treat each of the leaders of the different species as equals. Otherwise, it'll never work.
1: Well, that very much goes to, like, Avatar The Last Airbender, Mm -hmm. where Aang almost had to let teachers from each... Type of bender for each race push him around. So, Lionel, yes. maybe there's something he has to learn from each race. Or, like, he has to train to get the crystal that's in the possession of each of the three races.
3: Is that the way they're going to go, do you think?
1: I, I don't know. That's my prediction.
3: My understanding was that all those crystals are in his sheath, the paw, you know, the mechanical okay. paw. I think they're already, are still in those. Uh, okay. So I think he's in possession of all of them, unless somehow when they came, came down in, in the crash, he lost those. Well, that's or,
1: what I think happened.
3: Okay, because he put them into his, at the end of that, before the Book of Omen ejected him back to our time, or to the normal time, you saw him putting them into right. that.
1: But again, that could have been a simulation of what happened. Yeah. So he didn't observe her when he came out.
3: No, 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 I think that that was seeing that the ancestor did that back in the real time. Oh, okay. And so that they are part of the, I'm going to call it a sheath claw because <laughs> I don't know what to right, call right, it. Right, I know what you're talking about. But yeah, so if they say that they were lost or stolen or something of that nature and he has to get them back, that moves the story forward for sure and would be a great way to go. But I don't know if that is consistent with what we saw in that flashback.
1: Okay. My opinion is I think they're going to spread it out. Okay. And he's going to have to search for them just to create a story arc. Because on a lot of kids' cartoons, they're always searching for something. Yeah. You know, Dragon Ball was the seven Dragon Balls. And I think this or Avatar was him seeking out the teachers to train him on how to Earth bend and waterbend and do... The different bending abilities think this is going to be getting the crystals and armoring up and that way it's the armor's not in every episode because this bringing in the armor yes it was a cool idea it changes the visual look big time yeah it does from what we've normally are used to seeing so if this is like an occurrence that only occurs in a big battle or something like that that makes more sense but for the most part I was happy with this episode I like the past story. I like how they connected it to the old Thundercats show with them crash landing on third Earth at the end of the flashback.
3: Yeah, that was, that was really cool.
1: So essentially what we have is we have Thundera as the kingdom, and the planet they are on is third Earth. Yes. Instead of Thundera being a destroyed planet and the other kingdom being you know, third Earth. Right. Or there could be a whole other planet of cats out there. And that'll be a story arc later on when that planet appears. Because they did do a story arc in the old show where a new Thundera appears in front cool. of Earth and so they have to deal with that.
3: Yeah, that would be cool.
1: But that did not happen till like the third or fourth season of the original show. Yeah, that'll be way down the So that's going to be down the line, but that would be cool. So was there anything else you had on Thundercats?
3: Nope, just that I really enjoyed it.
1: So now that we've wrapped things up, regarding our thoughts on Thundercats. We're going to move into the closing. And Nico, you want to tell everyone what we've got happening on our next episode? It's a big episode. I'm pretty excited about it.
3: Yeah, on our next episode, we will begin our reviews of the fall 2011 TV season featuring the return of ATA favorites Castle, Supernatural, and Fringe, along with the new additions including Modern Family, Big Bang Theory, Community, Person of Interest... We're also going to try and slip in some more alphas, Doctor Who, and Thundercats. But that's going to be contingent on how much time we have schedule-wise.
1: Yes, definitely. That's going to be a big factor there. So we'll see what happens. We're trying a new format. Again, the Modern Family Big Bang Theory that Community sections are just going to be probably the thing we thought was the funniest in the episode. Very similar to how we went over our favorite episodes of Across the Airways on this episode. So hopefully that will work out. We'll just see what happens. And if you want to contact us regarding any of the new changes we're making to ATA, any of the shows we discussed today, Castle, Supernatural, Fringe, whatever you want to talk about regarding the fall 2011 TV season, please feel free to contact us. And you can do that by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. There you can access our Twitter page, which is across airways. There's no the, just across airwaves. You can click the like button on our page to access our Facebook page. And by liking our Facebook page, you can get access to all of Nico's TV news that he posts on Facebook. Also, if you want, you can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. So email us there. And you can also access our YouTube channel run excellently by our very own Michael J. Petty. And there he puts up all kinds of promos and videos about upcoming ATA events as well as previews and promos for upcoming movies and the fall 2011 season. So check that out. We also still have all the panels from Comic-Con up there that preview all of the new shows coming out this fall. So. Be sure to check that out. It's really great. And also I'm going to have Michael try and put together a new ATA promo video highlighting this new season of television. So we'll see if that works out. And also one more thing. If you want an easier way to contact us for access to all of our podcast episodes, you can download our Android app at the Android Marketplace. And you can access that by clicking the link on the right-hand side of our page. And once you get that app, you can easily access all the ways I just mentioned for you to contact us, basically just by just moving your finger across your phone. So definitely check that out. It's a really cool application. So with that, once again, for our Braid Trust member, Michael J. Petty, I'm Dan Schmidt.
3: And I'm Nico Reifsteig.
1: And until next week, we will catch you on the airwaves. Thanks, guys, and have a great week. Thank you.